Whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise and they will love you. Instruct the wise and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous and they will add to their learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For through wisdom your days will be many and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, your wisdom will reward you. If you are a mocker, you alone will suffer. Folly is an unruly woman. She is simple and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know that the dead are there, that her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. Okay, so the Steven Spielberg film, The Post, tells the story of Catherine Graham, who is played by Meryl Streep, who is the first female publisher of a major American newspaper, The Washington Post. The film is set in 1971, where The Post is struggling to keep up with other rival newspapers. And Catherine Graham is trying to come to terms with her role um, in running this paper and being undermined by um, some of the more domineering men uh, in, in, in the workplace. Now, a breakthrough for the newspaper comes as journalists gain access to what would be called the Pentagon Papers. And these were a series of classified documents which were leaked, and they proved that the government of the US at the time had been lying to the American public for years regarding the extent of the Vietnam War. Um, and how winnable it was. Now, running these stories could be a major victory in uh, solidifying the Washington Post as a major newspaper. But the government, under Richard Nixon, threatened to file criminal charges against any newspaper that would publish stories based on these papers. So Graham has to make an on-the-spot decision. Either publish and risk destroying the paper, or not publish and lose the opportunity to make a groundbreaking story and let the public know about really important information. Now, each choice had its voices. So journalists on one side were begging her to publish and lawyers and investors on the other side were begging her um, not to risk the Post's future and her potential legacy. So there's a big kind of tension. What is she going to choose? And she decides to publish. And despite being taken to court, along with other newspapers by the government, um, they win in court. Victory secured, and there is a landmark ruling on freedom of the press. Now today, we have the second of a new series in the Old Testament book of Proverbs, a book that was written by Solomon, um, King Solomon, and it's all about how we live wisely in the nitty-gritty details of life. Now, most of the book is made up of kind of short, punchy, pithy statements. But in the first section, chapters 1 to 9, we have a prologue. 
that kind of introduces us to the topic of wisdom and tells us why it's so important. Now, last week, we looked at the beginning of chapter one. And this week, we're kind of bookending it the other, the other side, top and tailing it, and we're looking at the end of the prologue, which was the passage we just read in chapter nine, before moving on to the bulk of the book next week. Now, as this prologue ends, you'll have noticed that we are given a kind of life or death decision to make. And like Catherine Graham, each choice is represented by competing voices. On one side, there is the voice of wisdom, which calls out to us. And on the other, we have the voice of folly or foolishness. And we see as we read that inevitably we will choose one or the other. So we have to make sure that we make the right choice. So there are three things that I want us to see this morning. The call of wisdom, the call of folly, and the need for humility. So first of all, the call of wisdom. So this is verses one to six. And as we look at these first few verses, we are introduced to wisdom. And wisdom here is personified as a woman. And she's an awesome woman. She's super cool. Um, so we look at verse one. She has built her own house. That's quite an accomplishment. She's been able to build the house herself. And this is no kind of end terrace. We're told it has seven pillars, which means that it's large, it's spacious, it's a luxury home. Now, she lives in the city, so to have a large house within the confines um, of a city must mean that she's very prestigious. She's clearly done very well for herself. And not only is she a good architect and a builder, but look at verse 2. She is an excellent host as well. So she's prepared a feast Meat and wine. This is no microwave meal or reheat from last night's bolognese. Think a roast with all the trimmings. And we're told that she has set her table. So she is expecting that others will come and enjoy her house and enjoy this meal with her. So we have an honorable woman, a luxury house, and a lavish feast. But there is something wrong with this picture. There's an element that doesn't quite fit in, and that's her guests. Look at verse 3 with me. She has sent out her servants, and she calls from the highest point of the city, let all who are simple come to my house. So who is she inviting to this banquet? Well, the simple now, we thought a bit about the term simple last week. It, it doesn't mean um, unintelligent. It doesn't mean having a low mental ability. To be simple means to be naive or gullible. So the simple are those who are kind of clueless when it comes to making wise decisions. They don't have insight. They're easily led by others. And unless they are shown the way of wisdom, they will inevitably end up choosing foolishness. So unlike Lady Wisdom, the simple are unimpressive. And yet it is the simple who Wisdom wants to host at her house. Not the great and the good, not those who are already wise or already impressive, but those who haven't got a clue. Those who are gullible. It's a remarkable picture. Now I remember when I was about 17 years old and it was New Year's, 
New Year's Eve, and I went out with some friends to a house party. And the house party that we went to turned out to be a bit dull and boring, so we were trying to scope out where else can we go. And one of us had had um, an invite to another party, so we thought we'd go there. And uh, this is up in North Manchester in an area called Whitefield. And we went to this house where the party was on a street called Ringley Road. Now, Ringley Road is one of the nicest roads in what is already quite a nice area. A lot of rich people live there. There are these huge, extravagant houses. So we got to this house in Ringley Road for New Year's Eve about 11 p.m., and I thought, this was a strong decision. This, this was a good call to come here. It was this amazing house. It was big. It was lovely. There were people sort of swanning in and out of every room, hanging out, enjoying the party. They had a heated swimming pool where guests were going to swim. Um, they had a snooker table that had a cloth over it decked in food and drink. Now, by my standards, this was lavish. And part of me thought, what am I doing here? How did I make it here? This was not my standard of living. I was not used to hanging out with this sort of company. And yet I had been given this opportunity um, to celebrate with everybody here at the hospitality of this girl who'd put on the party who I actually hadn't even met, but I was still able to enjoy it. And this is kind of a picture of what Lady Wisdom is doing here in this passage. Out of genuine kindness, she has opened her home so that anyone who wants wisdom can receive it. The simple can become wise. And this picture is given to us in Proverbs to communicate the availability of wisdom to you or I today. According to the Bible, wisdom is readily available for anyone who wants it. There's no entrance exam. There's no job interview that you have to pass. The table is set, and we are called in to come and eat. Notice this will involve change, though. Verse 5 to 6, look with me. To those who have no sense, she says, Come, eat my food, and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways, and you will live. Walk in the way of insight. Leave your simple ways. Wisdom welcomes the simple in, but they will not stay as they are. To come to wisdom's house involves change, repentance, a turning away from a previous direction and towards wisdom. So to become wise will mean leaving an old way of life behind. Now we'll see more of this change later, but what what will happen if you embrace change in going to wisdom's house. Look at the reward. It says life. So wisdom doesn't just offer you the tools to make good choices. There is a promise of true life. Did you see that? You will live. Oscar Wilde once said this, to live is the rarest thing in the world. Most people just exist. To live is the rarest thing in the world. Most people just exist. I wonder what your idea of really living is. Is it cocktails by the beach? Time away from work to hang out with the kids? Time away from the kids? Just the chance to rest and recuperate away from the stresses of modern life? 
For many, the good life is photogenic, isn't it? It's summed up in the photos we see our friends and family sharing online. Smiley, good-looking people having fun in exotic locations, having time and money to enjoy themselves. Now, we may look at these images and our lives may seem humdrum in comparison. The good life may seem a world away. But according to Proverbs, and according to the Bible, the good life is accessible to all of us. And it's found primarily in knowing God. That's what verse 10 says. We'll come back to that in a second. As Mumford and Sons once sang, you were made to meet your maker. Human beings are designed to know and be known by God, the one who made everything, the one who made us the one who loves us. This is what true life is, according to Proverbs. And it's a life that can bring us deep joy regardless of our circumstances, regardless of how much money you've got or how much holiday entitlement you have. In this passage, wisdom is personified as a woman, but the the fullest personification of wisdom comes in the New Testament in the Lord Jesus Christ. According to 1 Corinthians, he is the wisdom of God. So the book of Proverbs is his book. And this invitation from Lady Wisdom is his invitation. He calls out to us. He offers us wisdom and insight and true life in knowing him. We don't have to be impressive. If we're simple, that's just fine. His arms are held out wide and he welcomes us to his house for a feast. So wisdom calls out to us today. The call of wisdom. Secondly, the call of folly. Now it would be easier to be on the right path if it was only wisdom calling out. But in verses 13 to 18, we see that wisdom has a competitor. Folly, which is another name for foolishness. Now, just like Lady Wisdom, Lady Folly calls out and she beckons people into her house. She also calls out at the highest point of the city. Do you notice that? And she also calls to the simple. Let all who are simple come to my house, she says, verse 16, which is exactly the same words that Wisdom uses in verse 4. So we have two opposing voices each vying for the attention of the same people. Now, on closer look, folly is nowhere near as impressive as wisdom. So the text says that she's an unruly woman, turbulent, a loose cannon. And whereas wisdom is depicted as working diligently, she builds her house. Folly is just sat down, verse 14. It's a picture of laziness. And when it comes to offering meals, well... At Wisdom's place, you can get a a freshly cooked roast with wine. But Folly can only offer water and some other food. And even that food isn't hers. She's stolen it. Now, all of this shows us that we'll get a much better deal if we choose Wisdom over Folly. Surely to be wise is to be far better off. Now, given Folly is completely inferior to wisdom, it's kind of amazing that anyone would choose her house, isn't it? I mean, who's going to choose a ready meal over a banquet? It's crazy, isn't it? But 
For all her inferiority, folly has a few things on her side. Firstly, notice going to Folly's house doesn't involve any change on our part. So eating wisdom's feast will involve leaving simple ways, verse 6. But Folly says nothing about change or repentance. We can stay exactly as we are and choose Folly's house. This indicates that our hearts are actually predisposed in some way to choose foolishness over wisdom. Secondly, Folly's food may not be as nourishing as wisdom's, but it tastes really good. Do you see that in verse 17? Stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. Now at this point, it's worth noting that there's something more going on at Folly's house than the text in this particular chapter um, states. Throughout the prologue, in Proverbs 1 to 9, foolishness is pictured as adultery and sexual unfaithfulness. So earlier in chapter 2, verses 16 to 17, the readers are told this, wisdom will save you from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words, who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. That's her marriage. So wisdom is contrasted to an adulterous woman who has cheated on her husband and continues to want to sleep with other men. And this theme crops up repeatedly in chapters 1 to 8. So by the time we come to our passage, we understand that there's a kind of sexual undercurrent happening um, in these verses. And this idea of stolen water is significant as well. So earlier in chapter 5, readers are told that they are to stay faithful to their spouse. And they're told... Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. That is, don't commit adultery. Stay faithful. But what is Folly doing here? Offering stolen water. She's offering herself to other lovers, even though she's married. Now that may be wrong, but stolen water tastes sweet. Now here, Proverbs exposes something about our hearts that is uncomfortable, and it confronts us. Because often we will choose a behavior, not just despite the fact that it's wrong, but because it's wrong. And the wrongness of it will make it all the more enjoyable. In the New York Times a few years ago, Um, A writer, Wendy Plump, wrote an article about her experiences of infidelity, both as one who had cheated on her husband and who had been cheated on by her husband. She openly wrote of the devastation that an affair causes, but she remembers with regret what it was that she enjoyed about it. And part of it was that it was wrong. She says that when you have an affair, it's inevitable that those encounters with your lover will be thrilling. She says, the urgency, newness, and illicit nature of the affair practically guarantees it. The illicit nature of the affair, the sheer wrongness of it, is part of what makes it enjoyable. And beyond kind of sexual behavior, this is true in other areas. There is a kind of rebellious streak inside of us. We like to see how far we can go 
without being caught out and still getting away. We do this with our speech, don't we? Sometimes we'll say a joke that goes a little bit too far. It just slightly crosses the line, whether it's rude or harsh on someone. And then you may have done, done this. You kind of say it, and then a little smirk may appear on your face because you kind of know what you've done. And we, and we enjoy it. Whether in big things or little things, there is a temptation in choosing to behave in a way that is wrong. We, we know it's wrong, but we will enjoy it. Now, why, why is this? It seems irrational, doesn't it? Why is this? Now, in the fifth century, the Christian thinker Augustine considered this question. He wrote um, an autobiography called Confessions, and he looked back to a time when he'd stolen fruit from a pear tree. Now, that seems quite quaint to us, doesn't it? It's kind of like Theresa May running through fields of wheat. It's not exactly the most rebellious thing you can think of. But this is something that he dwells on at length in a part of his book. And he's particularly trying to work out, why, why was it that I stole that fruit? It's not as if he needed pears. He already had pears. And he says he had pears that were better than the ones that he stole. So why, why did he do it? Well, he said this. There was a pleasure in defying the law, in showing that I could do wrong and get away with it, which might seem a phantom of omnipotence. Now, what he means there is this. He's saying that he did it because it made him feel strong and powerful. To be able to break the law without getting caught gave him a bit of a rush so he didn't steal because he wanted a pair. He stole because he wanted to feel powerful. Now, I think this desire is in all of us to some degree. And this is why we will inevitably go to Folly's house at some time. Even though it's not as good as wisdom, even though we know that the behavior is sometimes wrong, we will do it because we crave a sense of strength and liberation. The problem is, though, this sense of power and freedom is a mirage. And that's what Augustine was getting at, a phantom of omnipotence, just like a, a vision that's not actually real. And this is what Proverbs says. Look at verse 18. Where does the house of folly lead? Little do they know that the dead are there, that our guests are deep in the realm of the dead. This is the tragedy of choosing foolishness over wisdom. We may do it thinking it'll make us free, but instead it leads to our death. If we want to turn away from wisdom to gain a power trip, we will not actually get the power that we are craving. After all, God is the source of all goodness and wisdom and light. If we turn from the light, what will we get but darkness? And if we turn from the source of life, what else is there for us but death? Stolen water may taste sweet, but it will poison you. And whereas wisdom is able to give you abundant life, folly can only lead to death. Call of folly. Finally then, the need for humility. So we've had the call of wisdom, which is at the beginning of the passage, we have folly, which is kind of at the end, and then we have this middle section. And wisdom and folly both call to us, 
and we have a choice in who we will listen to. But this middle section shows us that Proverbs has something really significant to add. And it tells us that there is a crucial factor which will affect whether we choose folly or wisdom. People don't gain life or death just through one isolated decision or choice. Rather, our choice is linked to our character. And our character forms and blossoms over time in one direction or another. And so a key trait of character that we need, according to Proverbs, is humility. And that's what these verses are about. So in verse 7, in verse seven we are introduced to the mocker. Now, a mocker is someone who doesn't listen. Mockers are naturally arrogant. They don't submit to anyone. They are cynical. And they tend to think that they, they can see through everything. Now, in our day, the internet has enabled a new generation of mockers. Social media is like a natural habitat, a place where they can tear people down in witty tweets and comments. Now, mockers may come across as intelligent and sophisticated, but ultimately, they are proud and unteachable. So what happens when you try to correct a mocker, even for their own good? Verse 7 you receive insults or verbal abuse. A mocker will never listen to Lady Wisdom. Instead, they'll just sneer at her and insist that they could see through her. Look at verse eight. Do not rebuke mockers or they'll hate you. Now, isn't that striking? The Bible says that there are some people it's not even worth trying to correct. It's futile. They think they know best and they will not listen. The problem, of course, though, is that though they think they know best, they actually don't. Look at verse 12. If you are wise, your wisdom will reward you. If you are a mocker, you alone will suffer. So for all their arrogance, for all their belief that they see through everything, ultimately they will suffer. If they do not listen to Lady Wisdom, then they will head straight to Lady Folly's house. Your character plays a critical role in whether you will choose the way of wisdom or folly. Now, our hearts are naturally on cruise control to the house of folly. And if we are to embrace wisdom, it will involve change and repentance. But in order to repent and change, we need to be able to admit we're wrong. We need to be able to humble ourselves. And we will never change if we are not humble. We must be willing to learn from God through his words in the Proverbs and the other scriptures. We must be willing to let other people correct us. Otherwise, we stay on the path to folly. So, time for some hard questions. How teachable are you? Are you the sort of person who people are afraid to confront because of how you'll react? How do you react when someone challenges you? Do you listen? Or do you get defensive? For some of us, the natural reaction to challenge is that the drawbridge kind of goes up in our hearts. We focus on how uncomfortable that other person has made us feel. Or how hypocritical they are. How dare they? We'll do anything sometimes to avoid actually considering whether what they said is actually true or not. 
Now, if this is you, you may have something of a mocker inside of you. And believe me, you can get mockers in the church. Some of them may look like impressive Christians. They may know their Bibles really well, just fail to apply it to themselves. But an unteachable spirit is dangerous. We must have the humility to be teachable. If you habitually refuse to be corrected, then you won't grow in wisdom. There is a reason this passage ends with folly in verse 12, uh, verse 18. Um, there's a reason it ends on death. It's supposed to kind of shake us out of our stupor, um, wake us up. The risk is real. Look at the contrast between the mockers and the wise, though. Verse 8, rebuke the wise and they will love you. So a wise person will be grateful to the one who challenged them. Sure, it might sting a bit in the moment, but the wise will take a rebuke on board and they will thank the person who corrected them. Verse 9, instruct the wise and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous and they will add to their learning. So in order to grow in wisdom, you need correction whether that's through the word of God or through the Christian community. For the wise person, to be called out on something is not an outrage, it's an opportunity to grow. And notice as well, to be wise isn't to be the finished article. Wise people still need to receive correction. Now I think this challenges our perception of what we think being wise is. Often in our minds, I think wise, to be wise, means to be self-sufficient. We want to be people who always know what to do in a given situation. We want the discernment to make a wise call ourselves um, without having to ask anybody else. The problem is, that attitude is a little bit similar to being a mocker, isn't it? Cut off from others, not needing them. Now, even our aspirations to be wise can be arrogant. You see, outside of Jesus, the self-sufficient wise person doesn't exist in the Bible. The wise are in community, and they thrive in learning from others. And this is why humility is so important. The truly wise person knows that they need others to correct them. Wise people are always humble enough to listen to the challenge. They know they've not got it all figured out. But sometimes it can take a while for us to get to that place. So Darren Patrick um, was a successful church planter and pastor. You may have heard of him. You may have read some of his books. He grew a mega church in St. Louis, Missouri. Successful author. He saw a lot of success in his ministry as well. He worked hard, dedicated to his church. However, in 2016, it became clear that there were serious issues of personal integrity in the way that he did his ministry. He had been overbearing in his leadership, manipulative, deceptive. He'd also had an emotional affair with a woman who wasn't his wife. The elders found out about it, they confronted him, and they removed him from his position. But they also encouraged him to begin a restoration process. Now, Darren reached out to some friends. He worked with counselors, his elders, and other pastors to try and work through his issues. And it became clear that he was completely blind to some of the problems in his character. He had been deceptive, but he couldn't see it. So as part of his restoration process, he had to have what was called listening meetings. So he had 20 of these. He would meet with someone that he had 
worked with. And he could only listen to what they had to say. He wasn't allowed to speak. He just had to sit there and take in what they said. First day, he had three meetings. The first, first, first meeting, person says this, you know, Darren, um, you're really relational. You know, I kind of like you. I, I, I think that you love me, but I, I kind of feel used by you. Second person, hey, Darren, you know, I, I kind of feel like a bit of a, a pawn in your chess game. Third person, yeah, yeah, I, I like you, um, but I, I never felt like when we worked together that I really knew you. I, I felt like, you know, we were always just going for ministry goals. He went home that night. His wife asked him how it went, and he was like, man, these people are so sensitive. Then the next day, more meetings. People are saying that the same thing, that they'd been used, that they felt like a chess piece in his ministry game. And over time, it hit him hard, the realization. He's like, oh, it's, it's not them. It's, it's me. Now, looking back, Darren believes that this was the hardest and yet most impactful part of his restoration process. He needed to listen. But once he did, even though it was hard, it was crucial to his growth. And today he counsels other leaders to be teachable. He says this, you are going to hurt people, but you have the chance to pay attention and ask people how they feel and how they experience you. Now that's good advice, isn't it? Wise people are teachable. They're humble. They listen to others. As we close then, finally, wisdom is found in humility before God himself. Look at verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. True humility, and therefore true wisdom, comes with submission to God. And this kind of stands Proverbs apart from other views of wisdom. Proverbs is not going to be like any other advice you could find in the self-help section in Waterstones. True wisdom, it says, is theological. It is bound up with knowing the God who made you. It is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. Now, as was mentioned last week, this fear is not a cringing terror. We do not fear God like we would fear a dictator. Rather, to fear him is to stand in awe of him as the supreme majestic king of all. And it involves a posture of humility. When we fear God, we let him be the controlling factor of our lives. We acknowledge that he is God and we are not. We let him correct us through the Bible and through others in community. But we are not to relate to God purely as a rule giver in the same way that we might relate to the tax office. Look at the end of verse 10. Again, true understanding and wisdom comes from knowing him, the Holy One. Now, this is personal, intimate knowledge. The God of heaven, the Holy One, wants to know us, and we can know him. And we know this God most fully in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, he offers wisdom to us. He offers a relationship with us. And if we get to know him, and we see his love for us, and kindness too, then we will happily sit under his authority 
You see, we will receive Jesus' correction, but we will also receive his forgiveness. He is gracious to the simple. He can restore the unwise. Through him and his wisdom, we can enjoy true life. We go through life hearing the twin call of wisdom and folly. Two different voices vying for our attention. But despite the temptations of folly, only in wisdom and in Jesus can we find what we are looking for. But to gain this wisdom requires humility. So don't be a mocker. You know, oftentimes we choose the way of um, folly rather than wisdom. But as long as we are teachable, there is hope that we will listen to Jesus' correction and end up at his house. But if we are unteachable and arrogant like the mocker, we will stay at Folly's house and reap that final reward. So then, as we go through Proverbs over the next few weeks, will you commit to reading them carefully, taking them on board? In your reading of Scripture, will you read it so as to learn from it and to be corrected by it? And will you seek instruction and correction from the Christian community? Let's not be mockers or foolish. Let's humbly come to the Lord and receive the wisdom and life he offers us. Let's pray, shall we?